Hello, and namaste everyone, and welcome to Living from the Heart. My name is Zach Beach, and if this is your first time joining us, welcome. I begin each session with a short poem of my own, and follow it with a 30-minute Dharma talk. And I close out each session with a short 15-minute meditation in order to integrate what we've learned about in the talk. And today I wanted to talk about how we as human beings are wired to connect. And if we are to heal our world, we have to heal our love. And today's poem is called Tidal Waves from my collection, Drinking Roses on Sunday. We are dependent on everyone and everything around us. Where would you be if your parents had never met? Where would you be without the ground or the sun that feeds the same plants that nourish you, giving oxygen and food and reasons to grow? The order of the universe depends upon the atom. So too does hate depend on the people that hold it. Give no time to such ignorance. Replace it with kindness. You cannot remove a burn, but you can heal it from the inside. Give light no matter the darkness and reach out to one another like a spider spinning its first web with hope, promise, and potential. Rub up against these mountains. Let's become glaciers in global warming, running down Mount Vesuvius, clearing forests, crushing cars, drowning the Eiffel Tower, flooding the whole world with our love, taking down authorities and empires and anything that stands in the way of love. All you have is more than enough. You are more heaven than earth, more of a miracle in the making, fluttering without wings, a wind full of secrets swooping up autumn leaves. And humanity has before it two possibilities. One is to continue with the war poverty, and destruction of our environment. And the other is to grow and expand our love. The second possibility is to conquer the world with our love. And I believe it is time to shift our focus from the former to the latter, from hate to love. And to understand how to conquer the world with our love, we have to begin with one of the most biggest myths of all, a myth that many people continue to believe in, and that myth is the myth of survival of the fittest. And survival of the fittest is a misinterpretation of the theory of evolution that says that only the strong have survived while the weak have died off. However, this is not true that only the strong have survived, particularly if we think of strong as meaning having muscles or running very fast. If only the strong survived, then tell that to the dinosaurs and the megafauna that once traveled the North American plain. Because it is not actually survival of the fittest. It is survival of the species that were most adaptable to change that survived and human beings have covered and conquered so much of this planet because we have been able to adapt so quickly to different environments and ways of being. 
And we've done that. We've adapted so quickly and so well through one pathway and one pathway only, through cooperation and connection with each other. In fact, human beings have conquered the planet because we are the most cooperative species on the planet. And this happened when humans evolved two fundamental changes. The first is somewhere between a million and 200,000 years ago, our brains got much bigger. And our much bigger brains with more connections allowed for more complex and sophisticated adaptations to the environment that we are around us. And while our brains got bigger, while we were developing and evolving larger brains, and while our head was getting bigger, another extraordinary transformation that happened in our evolutionary history is that we also started to walk on two legs. We started walking upright. And what many people don't realize is that these things conflicted. And they conflicted in how our babies were born. Because as our brains grew, our heads grew, and soon our babies got so big, as our pelvises got small in order to walk upright, that our babies had to be born younger and younger, earlier and earlier on in their natal development. So unlike an elephant, for example, which has a gestation period of around 20 months, our human babies aren't in the womb for nearly as long. As a result, our babies are born essentially premature. So unlike birds, which can leave the nest after just a few weeks, or a deer, which can stand on ten, in 10 minutes and walk in 7 hours, our young are extraordinarily dependent on us. And I know many parents who would love if their kid could just be born in the morning and start walking in the afternoon and take care of themselves by the evening. Our lives would be so much easier. But it doesn't work that way. Our kids need us. And as a result, we as a human species have involved some incredible capacities that are only seen in a few other species. And that is our capacity for love, for attachment and strong emotional bonds, to care for others, both within our familiar bonds and altruistically, to take another person's perspective to point of view and also to empathize with one another, with one another. So love, loving others, and the need for love are all hardwired into our brain. From the moment we are born, we are extraordinarily helpless and we need other human beings to be there in order to feed us, in order to shelter us. We are extraordinarily helpless and we can't take care of us ourselves. But our dependent on others as young infants goes far beyond our need for food, shelter, and protection. Some of you might even know if you've taken any Psychology 101 class, you've learned about Harry Harlow's monkeys. And you know about his infamous experiment where he took baby monkeys and he put them in cages. And in the cages, the monkeys had two quote-unquote mothers. And they had one mother, which was a wireframe mother that dispensed food and water. And it has second mother, which was also a wireframe mother, mother, but this was covered with a warm cloth. And Harry Harlow observed, where did the baby monkey spend its time? 
Did it fall in love with the mother that dispensed food and water? Or did it fall in love with the mother that produced warmth? And as you might imagine, as you might have already learned, the monkey spent all of its time clutching the warm terry cloth mother, and it only went to the other mother when it needed food and when it needed water before returning to the warm mother. And this is how warm-bloodedness works fundamentally in most mammalian species, is that it is literally passed down. And anyone who raises chickens knows this. We know that the mother hen needs to sit on the eggs to keep them warm before the eggs hatch and the chicks are able to generate their own warmth for their own physiology. This happens in human beings too. So an amazing things an amazing things an amazing thing happens when a mother breastfeeds her child or a father bottle feeds. And the child is not just getting the physical sustenance that it needs in order to survive. The child is being held next to a warm body. And that warm body has a heart rate that is beating at a certain pace. It has a breathing rate. It has a temperature. And there also is a crucial face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact between the caregiver and the infant. So I think many people have kind of a misunderstanding that there's some gene in our body that encodes our body's temperature to be somewhere around the temperature of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. What really happened in our development is that our body was held against another body that was 98.6 degrees and it absorbed that warmth and it thought this is an awesome temperature to be at. I'm going to continue to be at this temperature for the rest of my life. So it's not just that we need love at a young age in the form of food and shelter and protection. We literally need warmth, tenderness, kindness to be held, to be seen, and to be loved. There's a story of a family who went out to a restaurant for dinner. And when the waitress arrived, the parents gave their orders. And after that, the five-year-old piped up with their own order. And the five-year-old said, all of a hot dog, french fries, and a Coke. And the father interrupted and said, oh, no, you won't. And he turned to the waitress and said, she'll have meatloaf, vegetables, and a glass of milk. Looking at the child child with a smile, the waitress said, so, hun, what do you want on that hot dog? And when she left, the family sat stunned and silent. And a few moments later, the little girl said, with her eyes shining, she thinks I'm real. So our need for love isn't some like woo-woo new age idea. It is rooted in our biology and in our neuroscience. So just as you might write something down, that you personally don't want to remember or you want to remember later on, so too much of our evolution as a species has become externalized, has become passed down through social interactions, through our culture, and through our society. For example, just take any language. We're not born speaking the language that we were spoken to, but we were born being able to absorb whatever language was around us and begin to use it. So we can say language has become externalized. It's not rooted somewhere in our genes to speak a certain way. 
It is rooted in our genes to be open and absorptive of the environment around us, and then we, again, carry that on. So it's not survival of the fittest at all. It is the survival of the most cared for. You might even know the quote, it is not survival of the fittest, it is survival of the most nurtured. This quote was written by Luis Cozzolino, an American psychologist, and he has this lovely book, The Neuroscience of Human Relationships. And in the book, he writes about this externalization of our evolution. And I'll read this paragraph, but I'll warn you ahead of time, it's a bit of a mouthful. A lot of technical words in this paragraph. And he writes, our larger, more complex, and more experience-dependent brain allows for increasingly adaptive responses to environmental challenges. To accomplish this goal, we found that evolution selected for bonding, attachment, and caretaking to provide the necessary scaffolding for the prolonged extrauterine development required to build such brains. This socialization of the brain laid the foundation for increasingly sophisticated forms of communication, the emergence of language, and the birth of culture. The evolution of culture, in turn, allows for higher levels of biological, behavioral, and technological complexity, which emerge not simply within select individuals, but through the group as a whole. So that's a bit of a mouthful, but don't worry. The author, Cozzolino, he summarizes this up just a little bit later, and he says, In other words, from birth until death, each of us needs others who seek us out, show interest in discovering who we are, and help us feel safe. In other words, we need people who think we are real. We need people who love us into being. And being seen recognized and accepted for who we are is just as much of a fundamental human need as food, water, and air. There's a comic, and it shows an elephant on the psychiatrist's couch, and the elephant is saying, man, even when I'm in the middle of the room, people still fail to acknowledge me. So even the elephant in the room wants to be acknowledged. So it's easy to see how our need for love happens at an early age. Our infants, our babies are extraordinarily helpless. And eventually we can make it out on our own. We can navigate throughout society. However, our need for love continues until our death. It just shows up differently. There's a lot of really amazing and promising research on how important social connection is for our overall health and longevity. In fact, a lot of the studies that are coming out are showing that poor social connection can be just as bad as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day in terms of health and longevity. And it's really incredible because having a strong social network Having strong social bonds with other human beings lowers your chance of death from all causes. Every single one. So not just suicide, but also heart disease and cancer. So you might be wondering, well, why is that? What is the mechanism where strong social connection reduces our risk of death? 
And one way to think about it is, well, how do you even measure social connection to begin with? So, for example, if you had a test subject and you wanted to measure how connected they are, you might ask them some questions. One question might be something like, if you had a secret, do you have somebody you can confide in? Or, if you had an emotional problem, do you have someone that you can share it with? Another question you might ask is, if you were behind $500 on rent, is there somebody that you could borrow that money from? And it's easy to see that if somebody answers no to this question, how damaging that can be on their life. And it's really challenging just right now, we're in a loneliness epidemic, is that there's more lonely people with each subsequent generation for the past 100 years. And you can imagine that if you don't have $500 that you can borrow from a friend when you're behind on rent, then you're more likely to get evicted. When you're evicted and you don't have a home, you're more likely to have trouble getting to your job and being prepared for your job and more likely to lose your job and end up on the streets. So similarly, you might have friends and those really awesome friends that bring out the best in you. They support you. They want you to succeed in life and they help pick you up when you are down. So our friends are there to encourage positive behaviors. After like a challenging breakup, you might have a friend and say, you know what, you got to get out of this funk, let's go out, let's have dinner, let's go have a drink, let's talk about it, let's help you move beyond these challenges that you're encountering. So a really key and crucial aspect that other people play in our lives is what psychologists call emotional regulation. And it's really interesting what evolution has wired us to do and not to do. So for example, I can very easily take my right arm up and take my right arm down. I can consciously move my arm up and move my arm down. But I can't consciously move my anger up and anger down. I can't consciously move my sadness up and sadness down. We didn't evolve to regulate and control our own emotions, but we did evolve to feel better when we share them with others. You too have probably experienced this yourself, where you're having a difficult issue in your life, you're having a difficult problem, you feel like there's an incredible burden on you, an, incredi an incredible weight on your shoulders, and then when you share it with someone, and they listen, they really listen it with acceptance and non-judgment, and they receive what challenges you're going through, suddenly that burden gets lifted off. Suddenly you're not carrying this big heavy weight by yourself, but it's shared with somebody else. And this is what we've been evolved to do in our lives, to connect with our fellow brothers, sisters, and human beings. So we need the love and support of others if we are to be happy, if we are to be healthy. So my question is, well, why not give it? Why not extend our love to others that we know we all need? The great poet Hafiz put it this way. He wrote, Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one 
who lives with a full moon in each eye, that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. I love that ending so much. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. So we need love. We can offer it to others more freely, more openly, recognizing fundamentally that love is the foundation for our society that we are wired to empathize with each other, and bad things happen when there is a disconnection between peoples. Bruce Perry even has a book called Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. And he writes, Empathy underlies virtually everything that makes society work, like trust, altruism, collaboration, love, charity. And failure to empathize is a key part in most social problems. Crime, violence, war, racism, child abuse, and inequity, to name just a few. So the fractures that we see in society reflect the fractures that exist in our love. We are all connected. Everything that we do sends out ripples to the world around this. And again, this is not some woo-woo stuff. This is grounded in research, psychology, and neuroscience. You probably also know about mirror neurons. And if you don't, a mirror neuron is this special type of neuron inside of your brain that fires when you see somebody else do something. So for example, if I were to raise this glass of water and take a drink, the same neurons that would fire if you were to take a glass of water and drink also fire, but to a limited extent. So in other words, if you were walking down the street and you smile at somebody walking the other direction, they might not smile back, but guess what? Those mirror neurons in their head that coordinate smiling have been activated, and they're more likely to smile later to somebody else. So you might almost imagine every footstep that you take sends out ripples to the people around us. The poet Young Pueblo put it this way, When we think of happiness, it is important to remember that Generally speaking, we fall together and we rise together. We humans have the uncanny ability, whether we are aware of it or not, to feel and be affected in the plight and struggle of others. Energy sees no barriers. Wherever we are asked to keep our eyes and hearts closed, we are dimming the light of our own future. It is in the challenge of allowing our love to flow actively and limitlessly that we continue to find greater degrees of our own personal liberation and global liberation for all beings. This is true. Today we rebel by loving more. When we can see and treat each other as family, we will know a global peace. 
So we are all connected. A rising tide lifts all boats. And if we are to raise the tide, we have to expand our love. And this is one of the most fundamental challenges when it comes to living from the heart. Because often when we do first get in touch with our hearts, we feel an enormous tidal wave of emotions. And it's not just our own accumulation of emotions that we have been ignoring and suppressing for a long time, but universal sorrows of war, hunger, illness, and violence. These things reside in us. When you hear about a missile going off in Israel, when you hear about genocide going on in China, these things affect our heart. We as human beings are all connected to each other. Two years ago, before COVID, when we could still travel, I spent 10 days at the Kopan Monastery in Nepal. And I distinctly remember every night in the meditation hall, as we were practicing sitting in silence, right outside the door would be a large group of monks chanting, chanting, chanting endlessly. And they weren't chanting in a language I understood, and eventually, one student asked, why are these monks, what are these monks chanting about? And the teacher said, these monks are chanting for world peace. And they chant every night. And it's so easy to kind of take like a nihilistic attitude to such a practice that 20 people chanting somewhere random is not going to have an effect on the world. But guess what? If you sit down and chant for world peace for five minutes, you just created a world where people sit down for five minutes and chant for world peace. And I think about those monks a lot. I think about how they're still chanting for world peace. They're still wanting all of us to live in harmony. And everything that I've been talking about so far is why COVID has been so challenging for so many of us. Is first of all, COVID has been a large collective trauma that we are all experiencing. It's one of the really first major mass deaths that many people have experienced all around the world. And these are connected. The suffering of somebody in the hospital right now affects us where we are today. The suffering that we see in India, the deaths that we see in India affect our well-being here today. And the biggest challenge with COVID is that in order to limit its spreading, we have to limit contact with each other, which runs contrary to our need for love. Fortunately, we can cultivate our love, expand our love, and grow our love without going anywhere. We can simply sit right here, find our breath, clear our mind, and open our heart. So for our meditation today, I wanted to focus on cultivating that love within ourselves and sending it out to the world. And just breathing and feeling love is challenging for a lot of people. So one really great, great way to like prime the pump, so to speak, is to just start by thinking of somebody that you care deeply about. Think of somebody who you love, could even be a pet, and think about them and you'll just feel those loving feelings naturally arise. And then 
tap into those feelings and we can expand it to others. Okay. So let's find yourself sitting comfortably. And from here, elevate the spine, relax the shoulders, make a conscious decision where to put your palms, either in your lap or on your knees, facing up or facing down. Choose where you want to put your hands and leave them there. And let go of any desire to fidget. And from here, take a deep inhale through the nose. And slow exhale through the mouth. Do that two more times. Almost imagine this coffee press grounding your energy down as you inhale nose. And exhale mouth. And for us to experience any real benefit in our meditation, we need a calm and focused mind. Breath is a wonderful way to calm the mind. And focusing on the breath is a wonderful way to sharpen the mind. So bring your attention to your breath as it passes in and out of your nostrils and above your upper lip. Bring all of your attention to this area. Focus on the sensations of the breath as it passes in and out of your nostrils with laser-like precision. Stay here for a minute or two. If your mind wanders, bring it back to the sensation of the breath as it passes in and out of your nostrils. If your attention has wandered, bring it back to the breath. And now, let us shift our focus from our nostrils to our heart, to our ribcage. Drop your attention into your heart, into that beautiful beating heart inside of you.
And I want you to think about somebody who you care deeply about. Could be a friend, a partner, a family member, or even a pet. Somebody you have a strong, positive feelings for, strong sense of love and compassion. And picture this person, as you do, feel a warmth and a tenderness emanating from your ribs. And see if you can grow that feeling of warmth, picturing this person, tuning into your feelings for them, and letting them grow. Feeling your chest become warmer, become lighter. Expanding open like a flower. And let us take these warm feelings of positive regard and expand them further. So let your love expand into the room that you are in, touching the furniture, the walls. And if there's somebody in the same room as you, you can also expand your love to touch this person. And continue that expansion beyond your walls, outside or perhaps in the whole building that you're in, expressing your tenderness, kindness, warmth, light, expanding it out. And continue to grow. Feel the warmth emanating from your chest expand beyond your neighborhood. 
beyond your small suburb or town. Beyond your state. Expanding to fill your entire country. And then beyond national boundaries to include the countries around you. And finally, let your love encompass the entire world. And as your love encompasses the entire world, let your tenderness and care touch everyone, every race, every gender, every religion, nationality, every age, if we are to heal this world, we have to heal this love. And finally, let us come full circle because in our path of loving everyone, of course, we mustn't forget about ourselves. Let's come back to your body, heart, mind, your physical, emotional, and mental capacities. and cultivate that warm regard for yourself. Acknowledging how far you've made it, the battles you fought. Acknowledging that you are still here. Acknowledging that you are doing this meditation, that you have an earnest attempt to heal, to grow, and to live from your heart, rooted in your love, your purpose, your wisdom, your truth, and even your divinity.
and the divine heart in you and the divine heart in me are one as our inner being, inner hearts, truth and wisdom recognize each other, we can bow in reverence. Namaste. Thank you so much for joining me in this talk. Thank you for being here. And thank you for being you. <laughs>